0: stuff podcasts Hi, I'm Michael Wright and welcome to The Long Read from Stuff. This week's episode is called The Conundrum of Peter Ellis. It's by investigative reporter Martin van Baanen, who joins me now. Hi Martin. Hi Mike. So this story is in the news. That's why we're here, Peter Ellis. Lots of people will know that name, probably know that case. The Supreme Court has ruled on this case. It has quashed the convictions of Peter Ellis, 30-year-old convictions, extremely controversial. The story we're going to hear is one you wrote uh, about three years ago, summarising the case and where it had gone from way back in the 90s through all the appeals process up until about now. So, before we talk about this judgment which we're going to do at the end of this episode tell us about peter ellis most people will know like i say but just summarize this case for us what was it well peter ellis was a crèche
1: worker at the christchurch civic crèche centre and he uh, he was he was regarded as a flamboyant outrageous figure at times he uh, he was very good with children and animals uh, but um, he was a little polarising and, and some people loved him and some people uh, avoided him. So at the time uh, we're looking at, uh, the time he was working it was around about the early 90s. And at the time there were lots of stories around about satanic ritual abuse, um, children being taken away by pillars of the community and tortured in satanic-type ceremonies. So we had a bit of stuff around that at the time.
0: And so the Ellis case, where he comes to the attention of authorities here, starts with uh, one child in his care at the creche saying something to one of their parents that sounded inappropriate, and that set this whole thing off, yeah?
1: That's right. Uh, A child of, of a woman who had actually written a book about child abuse had a boy who came home and said that he had seen... Uh, Peter's black penis. Now uh, Peter explained this later as saying that well the boy had visited his uh, home and Peter had explained the difference between male and female puppies by
0: reference to his male puppy. And so Peter Ellis ends up being the subject of a pretty widespread investigation. There's this moral panic background to it all and he ends up in court. There's a number of complainants, a number of charges that changes, which is one of the contentious parts of this case. You covered this case at the time, 1993. What was it about it that made it so controversial? Why are we still talking about it, dealing with it in the courts 30 years later?
1: The case at the time was outrageous. If, if the allegations against Peter Ellis were true, then he really was um, a monster who had preyed on, on innocent little children. So, the, the scale of the offending and the suggestion that he, was, that he wasn't acting alone, but it was part of a conspiracy, was part of a ring, made it such a sensational case. But, you know, when, when the actual evidence was looked at and it really came down to whether the children were reliable in the accounts they gave of their abuse, uh,
0: doubts started to emerge. Right, last question before we get into it. This case has now reached the Supreme Court. It's released its judgment. Quickly summarise what it was that the court was looking at here before we hear the story. Essentially, the Supreme Court
1: was hearing an appeal by Peter Ellis that the convictions, 13 convictions that survived, were unreliable and were the result of a miscarriage of justice. Now, the appeal had a chequered history Peter died in, in September of 2019 from bladder cancer before the appeal had actually been heard, but it had been filed. So the court had to decide whether an appeal like his could continue despite his death. Now, uh, this is where it got really interesting because two members of the five-judge bench of the Supreme Court decided that the appeal shouldn't go ahead because the interests of the complainant children overruled anything else. But three judges, uh, the majority, decided that that there was so much public
0: interest in this case that it should go ahead. All right, let's hear about that case. Uh, Martin's going to stick around and we're going to talk about this more at the end, the details of the Supreme Court judgment. First, though, here is me with, I stress, a content warning, reading Martin's story, The Conundrum of Peter Ellis. In 1989, Christchurch was abuzz with rumours police were on the trail of a child sex ring. Children, it was said, were being taken away and horrifically abused by evil child pornographers. Similar stories had emerged overseas, especially in the United States, where police had investigated a number of preschools after allegations of sexual cruelty against children some of those childcare workers were already behind bars. A pattern was becoming clear. The cases would start with one startling allegation. Then, as anxious parents recoiled in horror, a raft of others would surface as police or social workers began interviewing children. Back in Christchurch, at least part of the story about the pornography ring was true. Police were indeed looking, but nothing was found. The persistent rumours of something badly amiss were fuelled in September 1991 by sensational news coming from a family violence conference in Christchurch. Two Wellington councillors, Jocelyn Francis and Anne-Marie Stapp, talked of middle-class child sex rings operating in New Zealand. Child pornography was a lucrative sideline. No actual cases had been exposed, but they had interviewed three victims and about 20 had sought help, the councillors said. The sceptical only needed to look to the US, where satanic ritual abuse had occurred at preschools and summer camps, they said. The floodgates were about to open. Their prescience was remarkable. Only about eight weeks later, a three-year-old attending the Christchurch Civic Crèche told his mother he didn't like crèche worker Peter Alice's black penis. The mother was receptive. She was the author of a handbook on child sexual abuse and had recovered memories of being sexually abused herself. A few months before, the counsellor had bought a puppy from Alice who showed the boy how to tell its sex. However, the boy's remark suggested something more sinister. The Civic Creche was a large, highly regarded facility owned by the Christchurch City Council and located in the central city. Alice had started work at the Creche in 1986 when he was looking for a place to complete his community service penalty on a conviction for misleading a social welfare officer. He immediately impressed and was kept on. The flamboyantly camp and lively new staffer with plenty of ideas raised a few eyebrows. But he had a warm rapport with the children and soon won over most of the staff and parents. By early 1990, he was fully qualified and even tutoring. After the boy's remark, his mother immediately made a formal complaint and felt obliged to tell parents of children her son had played with. Ellis was suspended, and police began an investigation, which they closed within a few months, before Christmas 1991. The boy who had sparked the alarm disclosed nothing of interest to specialist Social Welfare Department interviewers. But anxieties ignited by the black penis remark were not going to be dampened down easily. Parents asked their children about Alice and began swapping notes. Many wanted their children interviewed formally. As the interviews proliferated over February and March 1992, abhorrent revelations began to surface, prompting police to reactivate their inquiry. On March 30, 1992, Alice was arrested and charged with the first of what would eventually be 45 counts of sexually abusing crèche children. Before the end of that year, 118 children from the crèche had undergone disclosure interviews with specialists. And in a shocking development, four female crèche workers, Jan Buckingham, Marie Keyes, Deborah Gillespie and Supervisor Gay Davidson, were added to the list of accused. A trial was set for April 1993, but only Alice would face the jury of three men and nine women. The charges against the women, their careers ruined and lives blighted, were dismissed just before the trial. By the time Alice went to trial in the High Court, the Crown had reduced the original 20 complainants to 13, and the charges from 45 to 28. It was partly an effort to put its best case forward. It was also seen as sanitising the charges. I think you're conflating a whole bunch of issues. You don't want to be held to account what, no, on I, what, rising child no, abuse numbers. You can manipulate crime statistics. No, I promised I wouldn't have a to you about that got to Hang oh, into the National Party's no, attack no, line there. No, I think that it would be a resignation offence if I didn't deliver tax reduction. Yeah, yeah, I'm not worried about it at all. Nothing in there. On. That sits with you perfectly fine. That's what, we're, that's what we're focused on. Whatever happens in politics, the weird, the
1: wonderful, the important, the thought-provoking, we got you. Listen to Tova wherever you get
0: your podcasts. Seven-year-old Charlie, not his real name, had three older half-brothers and was the ninth child to give evidence against Alice at his trial. In many ways, he was typical of the children who would testify against Alice over closed-circuit television at the courthouse in Durham Street. Like the others, he was interviewed multiple times over many months. His parents had asked him repeatedly about what had happened at the crash and he had contact with two other creche children before the trial. The parents had swapped information with others. Charlie was first interviewed by a specialist interviewer in May 1992. By then, he was already in therapy, and a stream of children from the creche had already been through social welfare's doors for similar interviews. Charlie told his interviewer he had come to talk about Alice fiddling with his rude bits and said the carer had wobbled his dick and smacked his bum while he was being cleaned up on the changing table at the crash. He had never seen Peter take off his pants or seen Peter's rude bits, he said, and had nothing else to say about Alice or his rude bits. Three months later, Charlie was back for his second interview, in which he talked about an incident in a bath at Alice's house. Charlie said he had been made to eat poos and Alice had forced him to touch his penis. Peter had also put his penis up his bum and it felt ticklish. He had seen other men being cruel to other Christ children. Alice had dressed up as a witch and a judge and threatened to change him into a frog and send him to jail if he told. That interview resulted in three charges against Alice inducing an indecent act, indecent assault and sexual violation. During an interview the next day, Charlie said children had been put down a trapdoor into a maze where Alice's friends, Spikehead, Stupidhead and Boulderhead were present. A sharp stick had been put up his backside and Alice's mother had given him a poisonous drink. There was more abominable material to come. On August 6, 1992, Charlie told the specialist interviewer in a fourth interview of an incident at Alice's house where children had been made to stand naked in a circle drawn on the floor. Adults stood on the outside of the circle, playing guitars, and children were made to kick each other while Alice took photographs. Some of the guitar-playing adults had slitty eyes, and wore white suits and pretended to be cowboys, Charlie said. The children were kicked in the balls and the kneecaps. Charlie claimed the adults present included three other crèche workers, Gay Davidson, the crèche supervisor, Marie Keyes and Jan Buckingham. After the circle ritual, the children had been put in ovens and the adults present had pretended to eat them. A man had put a needle in his penis And three women creche workers had hurt penises and vaginas too, Charlie said. When he was asked why he had not disclosed the incident in earlier interviews, Charlie said, Oh, I just remembered today. This interview resulted in a charge against Alice of doing an indecent act on Charlie and charges against the women. By the time Charlie was interviewed again on October 1st, the creche had closed. At this fifth and last interview, he alleged children were hung up in cages at the creche and had burning paper and sticks put up their backsides. Today on Newsable, in a Stuff exclusive, the mother of baby Rue, the toddler who died late last year in Wellington, has spoken on the record and says she did not kill her son. Plus, step aside, working from home, working from holiday seems to be the new trend, and I have an update on the USA's Cicada Geddon. For everything that's worth talking about, find and follow Newsable wherever you get your podcasts. Charlie's disclosures were difficult enough but the jury for the six-week trial was faced with 12 other accounts of callous abuse. Some of the puzzles provided their own answer. Three charges based on the evidence of two young sisters were dropped during the trial. The older sister, who had turned seven by the time of the trial, told the court her interviewer, taught me what Peter did. The younger sister, only four, said her claim that Alice had urinated on her had not happened. On June 5th, 1993, after deliberating for 24 hours, the jury found Alice guilty on 16 of the 25 charges. In emotional scenes, Kresh parents and supporters wept and embraced. The 16 charges were based on the evidence of seven children. Alice was convicted on all charges relating to Charlie, except the circle incident. As author Lindley Hood pointed out in her exhaustive book on the creche, A City Possessed, five of the parents of the seven children worked in the sex abuse field. The verdicts showed a reluctance by the jury to believe allegations involving injuries, but accounts of Alice urinating on children and performing indecencies such as touching were accepted. Alice was interviewed by the press the night before the jury verdict. He would continue to plead his innocence, he said, until the day I die. The main issue at trial, as it would be in coming years, was the reliability of the children's accounts. The Crown, led by Brent Stanaway argued the children could not have come up with the detailed and plausible accounts if they had not experienced them. He accepted some of the allegations had sounded bizarre, but these were children who believed in Santa Claus and could easily be confused and misled. They had a limited vocabulary and took things literally. Parents knew their children and lived with the consequences of the abuse, Stanaway said. Rob Harrison, for Alice, argued the children's accounts were riddled with inconsistencies, contradictions, and incredible allegations. Those accounts, he said, were concoctions influenced by over-anxious parents who, through suggestive questions and sharing information between themselves, provided material for the scenarios emerging from the interviews. Just over two weeks after the jury verdicts, Alice was sentenced to 10 years jail by Justice Neil Williamson, who said he had robbed children of their childhood. Alice and his supporters saw no reason to give up hope. Graham Pankhurst, QC, soon to be a star judge of the High Court, took the first appeal to the Court of Appeal in July 1994, arguing in the main that no reasonable jury could have convicted Alice on the evidence available. One of the strongest planks of the appeal was that the seven children, whose evidence the jury accepted, had named 21 other child victims, either as observers or participants. Yet none of those 21 had confirmed the allegations. Pankhurst also argued the defence case had been handicapped by the limits placed on the videotaped interviews allowed to be played to the jury. Rob Harrison had wanted to show how the allegations had developed through the process, but was limited to what he could show. The appeal was adjourned during its fourth day to deal with a new development. One of the complainants, now aged 11 and probably the most credible of the child witnesses, had learnt of Alice's appeal from her mother. The girl then confessed she had lied about Alice. She had given the answers she thought her mother had wanted and a wee story just got bigger. The girl was assessed by lawyer Nicholas Till, who concluded the confession was more likely to have been prompted by a desire to remove the case from her life and to help Alice. The appeal court reluctantly quashed the three convictions based on the girl's evidence, but otherwise backed the jury's verdicts on the remaining 13 charges. Craish complainant families and their supporters, still convinced Alice was guilty, felt vindicated and called for doubters to call it quits. Of the 20 complainants in the original charges against Alice, six remained. Alice's remaining option was to appeal the decision to the Privy Council, but that would take money. Pankhurst applied for legal aid, but was turned down. With the Privy Council bid stalled, calls for a public inquiry into the case gathered steam, especially after the Employment Court awarded a million dollars in damages to Davidson and her three colleagues in 1995. The sum was reduced to about $80,000 on appeal. By late 1997, with Judith Ablett Kerr QC representing Alice, the focus of his campaign turned to the royal prerogative of mercy, essentially an appeal to the government to declare a miscarriage of justice and possibly issue a pardon. After various twists and turns, the case arrived back in the Court of Appeal in 1999. Ablett Kerr's main arguments were not that different from Pankhurst's, although she was more emphatic about the contamination of the children's evidence by parental questions And had obtained updated opinions on flaws in the way the children were interviewed. She pointed to the dangers of multiple interviews and suggestive questioning. The appeal was rejected, and in February 2000, Alice was released from prison, vowing again to clear his name. About a month later, Justice Minister Phil Goff announced an inquiry into the reliability of Kray's children's evidence and appointed former Chief Justice Sir Thomas Eichelbaum to lead it. A year later, Eichelbaum had reached his conclusion. Alice had failed, by a distinct margin, he said, to show his convictions were unsafe. Over the next 19 years, the case would not go away. In 2001, Linley Hood published her book on the case and was instrumental in organising a petition presented to Parliament in 2003 calling for a Royal Commission of Inquiry. It was signed by 140 notable New Zealanders. Over the past decade, psychology professor Harleen Hain of Otago University has been doing detailed research into the children's interviews. With the way cleared this week for Alice to have his appeal heard in the Supreme Court, her conclusions will be used in what will surely be Alice's last attempt to show the abuse at the Christchurch creche never happened. But time is running out. Alice is in the last stages of terminal cancer, and his supporters hope the allegations can finally be put to rest. A hard core of parents, former complainants and police will find the continued doubts about the case offensive. Innocent until the day I die, Peter Alice said. That day is coming sooner than anyone expected. Prepare for an unfiltered journey through the harsh realities of infertility. My name's Nadine Higgins. I'm a broadcaster, a journalist, and I've been trying to make a baby with my husband. That's me. I'm Dan. And we reckon infertility is lonely enough without making it a dirty little secret.
1: In the human race with Dan and Nadine Higgins, we share raw and unvarnished
0: stories of couples who have faced the brutal truth of infertility. Unless you've been in it, it's it's really tough and really lonely. Yeah, and also this is really weird, but baby showers, you don't need to open the presents in front of everyone. Confronting the harsh reality that not every story has a happy ending. This very blunt abrasive doctor who I had you know had not seen before who delivered the news it's just like you'll probably never have a natural period again and you'll probably never have a baby. The human race where we share the untold stories of couples in the race of their lives to create a life. I feel like I
1: nearly missed out and I got to do it and so I feel really lucky so it's
0: been incredibly positive. Listen today at stuff.co.nz slash the human race or wherever you get your podcasts. The Human Race is proudly brought to you by Alivit. That was the conundrum of Peter Ellis on the long read from Stuff. Joining me again is its author, Martin Van Bynen. Martin, let's talk a bit about the Supreme Court decision now. It has quashed the charges against Peter Ellis. And the key to this, it seems to be, really was, as you said earlier, the reliability of the children's evidence. That was what the whole case rested on. So first of all, their testimony. We heard in the bit before about um, Judith Ablett Kerr's appeal, contamination of what these children said and their evidence. What was the court saying here? Essentially, the court found a miscarriage of justice
1: based on two grounds, one of which was contamination. The judges decided that because parents had understandably questioned the children about possible abuse by Peter, they might have contaminated the actual accounts the children gave in their evidential interviews. Now, the important point here is that the court found that the evidential interviews, even if they had been done to a high standard, and the defence argued they weren't, but even if they had been done to a high standard, they wouldn't have corrected the
0: interviews of the contamination caused by the parental questioning. So this is parents being too suggestive, putting ideas in children's heads that they more or less reflect back to them because they're young children.
1: Parents were getting information from all over the place, including from their own children, but parents were talking, the children were talking, so there was a lot of information swirling around and the parents were warned not not to talk to the children about those allegations, to try and keep the interview process as clean as possible. But understandably, many of the parents did talk to their children, some of them very suggestively...
0: And the other part of all this is how that evidence was presented in court to the jury. That was a problem for the Supreme Court as well, yeah?
1: Yeah. As I said, there were two grounds on which the Supreme Court found a miscarriage of justice. We've already mentioned contamination. But the other one was um, the expert evidence given to the jury to help them with deciding whether the accounts of the children were reliable now the main crown expert and she was a critical figure in the trial was dr karen zellis who helped the police in the investigation and also supervised the interviews of the children so she had a she had a, a large role in the whole case and as the supreme court says that may have caused the imbalance in her evidence but anyway she was her job was to was to give evidence helping the jury to decide whether the children had given reliable testimony. Now, she came out with a number of characteristics which the Christ children exhibited, which were consistent with children who were known to have been sexually abused. Now, some of them were just like things like bedwetting and trouble getting to sleep, that sort of thing. But Dr. Zealous came out with um, 20 characteristics that the children exhibited that were consistent with child abuse. And the Supreme Court has found that her evidence wasn't balanced, that she went beyond her job as an expert in the trial, that she went beyond the ambit of the legislation that was that existed at the time, and that she dismissed arguments which now appear to
0: have won the day. So essentially then the jury was not getting a full and complete picture of how to treat this evidence that they just heard from the children, how to be sceptical about it, the extent to which to be sceptical about it, the things to consider when you're mulling, is this child telling the truth and how much are they telling the truth?
1: Absolutely. So so Dr. Zalas was important in that she was able to tell the jury that some of the behaviours exhibited by the Christ children were consistent with children who had been abused. And that was very powerful evidence. But in
0: fact... It was beyond what she should have said and was misleading. Like we said, it's the, it's the whole case. It's the crux of the case, how to treat these children's evidence. And this was an issue at the time. Obviously, we've been talking about this for 30 years. If you followed the case, as you have, you've reported on this more or less the entire time. You were there in 1993, and 30 years later, we're still finally considering this issue to Supreme Courts as far as it goes. What do you think? I mean, I don't know, was Peter Ellis guilty or innocent? How, how did it get to here for someone who's, who's watched the whole thing play out?
1: Well, we had a, we had a collection of uh, complainant children and their parents who were absolutely convinced that Peter Ellis was guilty. That was a, a, um, a difficult thing to deal with because essentially we were saying that the children had made some of these stories up, not perhaps through their own fault, but because of the sort of suggestions that were swirling around the case. Now, in a criminal trial, it's the jury's job to decide the reliability of the witnesses. It was their job to look at the children and go, I believe you or I don't. As it turned out, they didn't believe, well, they they found a number of the complainant children were not reliable enough to convict Peter, but they did find that some of them were reliable. Now, their decision was informed by what Dr. Zellis told them. And since Dr. Zellis' advice has found to be faulty, the Supreme Court was pretty much forced to say that that jury verdict was unsafe. As for my own view, look, I was a fairly inexperienced reporter uh, when I covered the trial in '93, but my feeling was that when I, when I looked at the interviews... I looked at the and I looked at the way they were done um, and heard about the parental questioning and some of the other material. I wasn't prepared to vouch for Peter, but I thought the evidence was unsafe, that the evidence wasn't enough to convict anybody of a criminal offense. That was my impression, that was my feeling, and it hasn't really changed in the 30 years since.
0: Well, here we are. Thanks, Martin. Thank you for that. That was The Conundrum of Peter Ellis on The Long Read From Stuff, written by Martin Van Banen and read and produced by me, Michael Wright. This episode was edited by Connor Scott. If you're listening via The Stuff website, you can hear this story and many more like it on The Long Read podcast, available on all the usual podcast apps. If you like what you heard, please give us a five-star rating and a review. That helps other listeners find us. Thanks for listening.
1: If you liked listening to this pod, help us make
0: more like this. Visit stuff.co.nz support.